Okay, Revelation chapter 5. And um, if you would stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word, we're going to read the entire chapter. Revelation chapter 5. The Apostle John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep. Well, I went skip the verse, didn't I? And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the elders a voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, the versions of it that we have. Thank you for the apps that we have of it. Thank you for how uh, available your word is to us. We think of the thousands of languages around the world that have not yet been translate your word has not yet been translated into we pray for Wycliffe Bible translators and so many other missions organizations that are working to translate your word into native tongues father we take this for granted all too often but this morning may we revel in the fact that we have the very words of God at our fingertips may we tremble and may we be confident that you will speak through us through your Holy Spirit this morning father I pray for those here this morning who do not know you who know about you um, who um, have heard of you and yet they have not repented they have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ the Lord of the universe who loved them and gave himself for them may this morning be a time of decision may be a time of conversion of regeneration of justification of entrance into the kingdom may this morning be that time for some this morning. God, I pray that you would also encourage us, that you would uh, remind us, that you would give us confidence in the fact that you and your Son are ruling this world and that your Holy Spirit is here on earth 
um, in our hearts, guiding us um, as we seek to become more like Jesus. So Father, do that work in this church. Do that work in Bible-believing churches all over this region. May there be revival in Orange County. And may we see people turning to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we skipped ahead a little bit. Pastor Ron um, is preaching through the seven churches of Revelation in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. There's only one church left, and that's Laodicea. And I think Pastor Ron might do it next week. We'll see, though. It's Mother's Day. Um, But we're going to continue to to finish that series up in the next few weeks. Um, But Revelation 5, full disclosure, I'm writing a paper on it right now for class. So I, I was a little more familiar with it when Friday night I was told I was preaching. So we are going to go through this amazing passage. Uh, so much in it. I am not going to answer all your questions. I'm not even going to explain all the stuff in it because there's way too much to do. This is worth about a month's worth of sermons. Um, it's the book of Revelation. How many of you would love it if Pastor Ron just continued on and preached through the entire book of Revelation? Um, elders take note of that and we'll pressure Pastor Ron when he gets back. Oh, just kidding. Uh, but the book of Revelation, why are we attracted to it? Why do we, why do we like it? Why did so many of you raise your hand? Okay, it's relevant to today. It's weird. That is true. There is a blessing for those who read it. Yeah. What's, what's that? Future. It's our future. Yeah. We, we are, we're fascinated by the future. How many of you are sci-fi fans? Right? Okay, and there's about 20 of you that weren't brave enough to raise your hands. Yeah, we like, we like future, we like technology, we like dilemmas, we like end-of-the-world type of things. We're, we're, uh, some of us are attracted to those kinds of things. Um, but I think that Kristen's comment brings it out. This is a weird book. This is a really weird book. And so we're going to get into that a little bit, but... The, study, the part of Revelation that we've been studying the last two months um, is the letters, right? And so a little more tame, um, not as weird, a little more familiar. We're, we're familiar with that because we like the epistles of Paul and of John and of Peter because they're kind of point by point and making an argument. Um, when we get to Revelation, just the whole thing just goes crazy and we're trying to grab as much as we can and, and get it and understand it. Um, this is an apocalypse, Okay, the book of Revelation is unlike any other book um, in the scriptures other than, than Daniel and portions of Zechariah and maybe parts of Isaiah. But the fact that it's an apocalypse means it's part of a genre that we are not familiar with. <laughs> um, however, the people in the first century and the second century and even before that were very familiar with these apocalypses. Um, they were written uh, with outrageous pictures um, fa- fantasy characters, dragons and lambs with seven eyes and all kinds of, of creatures and weird things. And so the people of the time were used to that. We're not so much. Um, this goes far beyond monsters on Sesame Street or whatever fantasy series that you read or watch on TV. This is just flat out weird. And so this morning we need to understand that the Apostle John is writing in a specific genre, apocalypse, to a people that would have understood it in a lot better detail than we would. However, that doesn't mean we can't understand it. That means we have to study and work hard. So we're going to do a little bit of that this morning. Um, I've entitled this morning's message, message, The Ever-Increasing Worship of the Lamb. The Ever-Increasing Worship of the Lamb. 
And we're just going to kind of go verse by verse through chapter 5, pull out um, some amazing things, try to explain some things, and end with an application before we take part in the Lord's Supper this morning. So why don't you take a look at verse 1. Chapter 5 is not understandable without chapter 4. Chapter 4 is where we um, get uh, a lot of the wording for Revelation song. Um, Very popular song at the moment. Chapter 4 is about the throne and about the one who is seated on it. In chapter 5, we stay in that same setting. So we're in heaven. Um, We are in the throne room of heaven. That's the setting of this, and that's where things get weird. Verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Some of your versions might say book. Uh, The word for scroll here is biblion. Sounds a lot like Bible. That's where we get the word. Um, But at the time when John was writing this, most often things were written on scrolls. So the scroll would be um, flat. There would be writing on it sometimes on both sides, and then the scroll will be rolled up. It could be a small scroll with just a message, the Daily Mail, or it could be a longer scroll containing a book, like Revelation, or the book of Matthew, or the book of Romans. Um, And usually the scrolls did not go past a certain size, and that's why some of our books in the Bible are curiously very similar in size, because they filled out the max extra-large scroll that they had. And so um, we see a scroll in the hand of one who sits on the throne. Notice it's the one who's seated on the throne. There's not a lot of description there. If you go back to chapter 4, you can see some of that description. But the one who's seated on the throne is holding a scroll. And the curious thing in the book of Revelation is the one who is seated on the throne. That's the, the normal title for God in the book of Revelation. The one who's seated on the throne doesn't... This is not heresy, please don't. He doesn't do anything. He just sits there. Now we know that he's holding the universe together. (laughs) We know that his plan is working itself out. But the descriptions that John gives of the one who's seated on the throne in the book of Revelation are that he's sitting there. He's ruling and reigning. He doesn't have to stand up. He doesn't have to get out of the throne. And he's holding a scroll written within and on the back. And it's sealed with seven seals. Um, So this is important to remember. Um, We're not used to this. Uh, but usually it would be some kind of substance that would be stamped, maybe is a better word for us, on the scroll as it was rolled up. So when the scroll was rolled up, it would be sealed with the seals. And sometimes there'd be one. Sometimes there'd be three. We do have some evidence that sometimes there would be as many as seven. And the, the seals would say who it was from. So maybe you had a signet ring that you're the emperor. Maybe you, your last name is Bessie and you have a big B and that determines who it's from. It also shows when you open it, right? So it's when um, you buy the stuff at the store and it has the, like, do not open. If this is already open, do not eat it because the seal has been broken, right? That's, that's what we see in our day, the seal of the, of the soda or the seal of the crackers or whatever. It hasn't, it, you can tell it's been opened. And so that's the point here. The letter has been sealed and it needs to be opened. And this is very interesting because in the book of Revelation, we have hundreds of allusions back to the Old Testament. So you cannot understand the the book of Revelation very well at all without understanding the Old Testament. There are hundreds and hundreds of allusions and barely any quotes. So what do we mean by an allusion? Well, we mean like a a picture. 
um, the wording may be similar or the wording may be different but bring up the same kind of picture in your mind of something going on in the Old Testament. So turn with me to your favorite book, Ezekiel. I know a lot of you are in it this week for devotions. You love that book. Well, no. Ezekiel's a tough book. It's a hard book. And it also has some of these weird pictures and weird um, sightings of things that are hard to describe. They're called creatures or beasts. So turn to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 2. The end of chapter 1, there's a throne. It's gleaming. There's fire. uh, There's wheels on the throne. It's very bright. And then one speaks the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And we go down to chapter 2, and we look at verse 9. Ezekiel says, When I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. Wow, that looks a lot similar to Revelation chapter 5. So John is is on purpose, is explicitly drawing our attention back to a picture from Ezekiel, written hundreds of years before. And as you continue to read, you see that the scroll is opened up and that Ezekiel eats the scroll, um, figuratively saying that he ingests the message and he now has to give the message to the children of Israel from God. Um, we see later on in the book of Revelation that John does the same exact thing, that he ingests the scroll, it tastes good and bad, and he's supposed to give the message. So a picture from Revelation back to Ezekiel. So back to Revelation chapter 5. There's a scroll. It's written on the back. It's sealed. So most believers at the time, if they were at all familiar with the Old Testament, would have gone, ah, that sounds a lot like Ezekiel. Well, there's, there's a right hand holding a scroll. And in verse 2, we, we are introduced to a being, a mighty angel proclaiming, same word that we use in some places in the New Testament for preaching, a loud voice. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? So this is a contest. Um, This isn't any normal scroll. Um, You don't just get your paper opener, your letter opener, and slide it down. Um, You don't pull out your pocket knife and open it. There's some kind of password on this, right? How many of you have a smartphone? How many of you have a password in order to get onto your phone? Okay, yeah, good idea, especially if you have little kids, (laughs) right? You've got to do one of those like weird like zigzag things or you have to type in a number in order to access it. Well, this scroll is not simply opened. It takes someone who's worthy. So so my mind goes back um, to uh, Indiana Jones, right? In the, what's that one called, the last one? Well, not the last one, the third one. Last Crusade, thank you. The Last Crusade. And he's in the room with the knight who's like, you know, hundreds of years old. And he's got to find the cup, the chalice, right? And, and it needs to be the right one or something bad with, um, before there was a lot of computer graphics is going to happen to you. And so he's got to be, quote unquote, worthy. That's what my mind brings up, that there's some kind of qualification to open this scroll. And so the angel is kind of opening up a contest. Who can open it? Right? Who can pull the sword out of the stone? Who can, who can come and do this? Who is worthy? Verse 3, bad news. A search was conducted and no one, notice where they looked, in heaven, on earth, under the earth. 
was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So this, this competition has no winner. No one can open the scroll. Not even anyone in heaven. And before this, we've seen um, four crazy living creatures. We've seen 24 elders before the throne. We're in heaven. And no one in heaven is worthy to open the scroll. That is really important. It's setting up. We have this kind of suspense. Oh, who's going to open it? Who's going to do it? Well, no one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth. That means no one living or dead. No one anywhere in the universe can open the scroll. Verse 4, what does John do? He begins to weep loudly. Or some of your versions say much weeping. um, Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So this might be a little bit weird. (laughs) John's in heaven and he breaks down weeping. Um, Why? Well, what's so important about this? We don't really connect with it because it's like, okay, well, no one can open the scroll. God's holding it. Maybe he's going to. Maybe he's just kind of waiting to show everybody that no one else can. Maybe God's just going to open it. Now, John understands that if the one seated on the throne is holding a scroll out for someone to open and no one can open it, then we're missing out on something of incredible eternal importance. If God holds out a message and we can't access it, that's a problem. In fact, that's the biggest problem in the universe. If God has a message for sinful humanity and sinful humanity cannot access it, then we have a problem. And that's why we have missions. Because there is a message that is being held out to humanity and we know the message. And so we go to those who don't know the message and tell them. Well, in this case, John says there's a message and it's not being read. No one is worthy to open it. So he weeps loudly. He reacts because he wants to know what the one seated on the throne has to say. And I would ask you, Do you want to know what the one seated on the throne has to say? And as we nod and say, yes, does your daily life reflect that? Is it important to you that you know what the one seated on the throne has to say? I tell you what, in my life, I I am, uh, there's competition for the one who's seated on the throne. The newspaper, sports section, um, websites, blogs, um, they get in the way in the morning. I let them get in the way in the morning oftentimes because I want to read what they have to say. And sometimes I think about that, how ridiculous that is. When this is held out, um, when this is held out for you, well, on Tuesday night, um, Phil Zergis was here sitting in the back during reality check. Um, uh, Phil is not an old man, by the way, but the fact that he was here with a bunch of teenagers and maybe people in their early 20s just kind of emphasized that there was more wisdom and knowledge in the room than was possessed by the teenager. So I pointed Phil out and I said, how many times have you read the Bible? Numerous times. Um, and I, my point was, Phil wants to read the Bible because he doesn't understand it well enough. He said, I need to know this book. And so if that's the case, then we ought to, to push others to the side and make this our primary reading. Now that doesn't mean that you have to time yourself every day and say, oh, I read my Bible for 29 minutes, which means I can only read my John Grisham novel for 28 minutes. That's not what I'm saying. But, but the words from God um, ought to inform our lives um, and our days. So this is a side point. Read the Bible. <laughs> Make time. Um, people say, I, 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 I didn't have any time. No, you did. You just didn't make time to get into the Word. Find time, make time, make time. 
make it a priority. Well, back to verse 4. John is weeping. There's no one who's worthy. And then we're set up for verse 5. And one of the elders who we met um, earlier on in the book of Revelation, there's 24 of them standing before the throne. What does that mean? Well, number that we're familiar with in the Bible, 12 times 2 is 24. Um, Again, so many numbers and so many symbols in the book of Revelation that we would be foolish to say that we've got them all down, but we can make some good educated guesses. Okay, so the numbers 12 are important in the Bible because in the Old Testament there are 12 tribes of Israel. And curiously, in the Gospels, Jesus picks 12 disciples to be his close companions. And so perhaps this represents the church and Israel. Um, Perhaps it represents um, some kind of completeness where there are 12 and 12 before the throne. Whatever the case, there are 24 elders and one of them speaks up and says to John, weep no more. Don't you love it in scripture when that happens? Angels show up often, right? And they're like, fear not. Like, uh, why? (laughs) Uh, This is, this is, I'm afraid. Um, Angels, Jesus does that at times. Um, Be, do not afraid. Here, similar, weep no more. John, I have a valid reason to weep. The elder gives him reason to, to cease weeping. Look at this. This is a fantastic verse. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, again, Old Testament becomes really important here. Because let's just say you're a Gentile believer in the first century. You, you've started reading the Old Testament because it's available to you, uh, but you don't have an app. You don't have a, a well-bound book, so you have to go access a scroll or you have to memorize what's being read in church. Um, Lion of the tribe of Judah. That sounds familiar. Where is it? Genesis 49. Let's go. Genesis 49. This is very clearly referring back to the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 49 This is Jacob, or Israel, blessing his 12 sons. It's very interesting. And in verse 9 of Genesis 49, he blesses his fourth son named Judah. And he says, oh, sorry, sorry, verse 8. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. So we see some, some language of superiority. You bow down before a superior. Um, your hand on the neck of your enemies means you've conquered, you're victorious. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? Okay, think of a lion. What do you think of when you think of a lion? What immediately comes into your head? Lion King for my generation. <laughs> Power. Right? If you live, um, especially in some of the more Asian neighborhoods in Orange County, there's a pillar and there's a lion on it as you go into someone's driveway. Um, National Geographic, right? There's this huge cat chasing down antelope, munching on it, right? Um, The lion is the king of beasts, or the king of the jungle, majestic, regal. And so the the picture here is that Judah um, is a lion, Something about Judah is lion. And verse 10 tells us, the scepter. Who holds the scepter? A king. A king holds the scepter. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And it continues to go on and talk a little bit more. But the picture here is that Judah is the tribe chosen among um, all the tribes of Israel 
where the king is going to come from. And we find that out later on as we read our Bibles. Because the first king of Israel is from... Some of you fell for it. No, he's from Benjamin. Saul is from Benjamin. What's up with that? Well, the Lord teaches his people that when they do things their own way, things don't go right. The next king after Saul is... David's from what tribe? Judah. And so we see that the kings of Israel descend from Judah. Um, And a very kingly picture is a lion. And so we go to Revelation, and now we have much more of an understanding that the Bible talks about this. There's more uh, about the lion of Judah as we go through the Old Testament, but that's the primary passage in Genesis 49. So in Revelation 5, we see that there is one who's worthy to open the scroll. Who is it? The lion of the tribe of Judah. But we're not done with the Old Testament because we've got another title. The Root of David. Okay, so in your minds, picture... How many of you have a garden, by the way? Garden? Okay. Um, Roots, right? What we're talking about? What's a root good for? Some of them are tasty, but... What's a root do? It nourishments. It it, it sucks in the water, right? It's the base of the plant, okay? Okay. if, if you know anything from science when you were a kid, you learn about roots and how it nourishes the rest of the plant. Um, these people were very familiar with this because they were familiar, much more familiar with agriculture than we are. But the root of David. So what does that mean? Well, maybe the source. Uh, maybe, maybe nourishment is the picture we're looking for. Let's go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, and see where this picture comes from. Isaiah 11, and we'll start with verse 1. This is a very interesting picture. The root, the root of David. By the way, uh, David's a very important figure in the scriptures. If you go to a concordance or look up on your app or something, you type in David, you type in Jesus, you will get more hits in your Bible with the word David than you will with the word Jesus. Just an important, important thing. If you want to understand the Bible, you want to understand Jesus, you have to understand David. Understand who David is. Chapter 11, Isaiah. Verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And then verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. What's going to happen? Well, there's going to be a shoot that comes from the stump. What, what, why is there a stump? What's a stump indicate? The tree has been cut down. But from the stump, there's going to be a branch, a shoot that comes out from the roots, and it's going to bear fruit. So the picture is the Old Testament that even though God's going to judge his people, he's going to leave a stump. And from the stump, there's still potential for growth. And then we also see what's... What, the Jews um, of the first century and before that clearly thought of as a messianic passage. This is saying something about someone who's going to come, who's going to have the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him. The, the New Testament picks up on this. This is clearly Jesus in the Gospels. Clearly Jesus. Go to verse 10 of chapter 11. As we look ahead, look forward to a day um, when the Lord will uh, restore the land of Israel and his people. In that day, the root of Jesse, who's Jesse? David's father, okay? 
that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. It's interesting in the New Testament. Jesus begins to do miracles and preach. And who comes to him? The Jews and the surrounding nations. They come to this descendant of David. So, back to Revelation 5. We have two pictures. We've got a picture of a lion, regal, kingly, ferocious. We have a picture of a root, of a prophecy being fulfilled, of a person who has taken on these names. Now, we, we don't have who this person is yet, except for these nicknames. Okay? So, John, don't weep anymore. The Lion of Judah, the Root of David, what's he done? He's conquered. Now, if you've been paying attention at all through this series in the seven letters of the churches, every single letter mentions to him who conquers. To him who conquers. Go back and look. Chapter 2. It's right there. It's verse 7, to the one who conquers. Okay, uh, verse 11, to the one who conquers. And that's promised throughout every church. The one who conquers. And in verse 5, we see the ultimate conqueror. We see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that purpose. Why is he conquered? He's conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So his conquering is the one that is the thing that makes him worthy. It qualifies him. All the others throughout all creation couldn't open the seals. They couldn't open the scroll, but this one can. Why? Because he has conquered. He has conquered. Now, before we start making connections with other scriptures, but I know your mind is doing that. That's fantastic. That's good. But we have not yet heard in chapter 5 exactly who this is. Now, if we know anything about the Old Testament, we're kind of starting to piece things together. We have a sneaking suspicion. We have a lion and a root. Now, look at verse 6. Something happens. The setting is the same, but look at verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures... And among the elders, so get the picture, the very center of heaven, there's a throne. Okay, there's one who's seated on it. We know from the previous um, passages and we know from further on that this is the God of the universe. He's seated on the throne. Before the throne are four living creatures who sing holy, holy, holy. There's 24 elders who keep falling on their faces. Like that's all they do almost in the book of Revelation. They keep falling and bowing. They throw their crowns. They've got... um, They've got uh, bowls, which we'll see in a minute. But the center of this, John sees a lion. No, a lamb. Right? Okay, he was just told, don't worry, John, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered, the root of David. And then when he looks, so we can expect just, just, just looking at symbols and looking at the pictures, he's told, hey, John, don't worry. The lion is conquered. And John looks, and there's not a lion. There's a lamb. Now, that's a pretty big difference, wouldn't you say? Right? When you watch National Geographic, you don't look at, like, lambs, like, right? Like, chasing an antelope, right? What, what's the lamb doing? Like, you know, lambs, they're like lawnmowers, right? Now, just chewing the grass, right? They get, their, they get their wool sheared, right? They're just kind of hanging out. We know from scripture and from experience that, that they're not the smartest animals, right? So, so what is going on here? Lamb! That's not the same as lion. What's, what's happening? Well, um, we would know from reading the other books that John has written 
that one of his main titles for Jesus is the Lamb. Right, John one twenty nine. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He sees a lamb. This is curious. So this thing standing before the throne is a lion lamb. A lion lamb, or a, a, lamb, a lion-like lamb, or a lamb-like lion, or maybe both. Well, what are, what are the pictures that we're looking at of a lamb? Well, unmistakably, if we know anything about the Old Testament, we think of Passover, we think of sacrifices, we think of lambs. Um, just think of the Feast of Passover. Um, very interesting. The lamb was supposed to be without blemish and was supposed to be brought into the home almost like a pet, and kept in the home for a few days before um, it gets eaten. Okay, now, this is far, far away from anything in our experience. Okay, we, we get lamb from the butcher. Okay, we go to the store, we go to the restaurant, and that's where we get our lamb. It doesn't live in our backyard. We don't perform any sacrifices. But think of what this picture is. There's a lamb. Immediately, thoughts are sacrifice. That's the opposite of lion. Lions make lamb sacrifices for their own meals, right? That's, that's a big, big difference. Notice what else John sees about a lamb. It's standing as though it had been slain. Okay, think about that. Standing as though it had been slain. Okay, how many animals or people for that matter are standing up after they've been killed? That, that, that doesn't happen. There's a, so so there, this is so weird. There's, there's a lion. No, it's a lamb. It's standing, but it's dead. But it look, what, it's alive, but it looks like it's been slain. What is going on? A lamb standing as though it had been slain. And it gets weirder. Seven horns. It's a mutated lamb. Right? That's what we think. Seven, seven horns. Not only that, it's got seven eyes. Th- this is something... Very, very out of the ordinary. Well, because it's an apocalypse, if you understand the genre, you're not surprised by these things because it's a, it's a fantasy picture. It's, it's, a, it's a symbol meant to say something specifically. It's not meant to... So, so John is seeing a vision, but John doesn't come away from the vision understanding that, that there is an actual lamb with actual seven horns and actual seven eyes. There is a picture of it to show a deeper spiritual truth. So, what do we see? We see a lamb that's been slain. So we think Passover. We think John, the the Gospel of John, we think a slaughtered lamb. Jesus died during the feast of Passover. That's not an accident. Um, Isaiah 53, like a lamb led to the slaughter. That this picture is, is very specific in Isaiah 53. So we know this is talking about Jesus. Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, standing as though it had been slain. Seven horns. What does a horn stand for in Scripture? Well, a horn stands for power, authority, might. You see this in the book of Daniel. Um, You see this in other places that that a horn stands for something that gives you authority, power. Um, There are horns on the altars um, of the people of Israel. Because it stands for for power. There's something going on at the altar. Power and authority. So we see seven horns. We know, most of us know, if you've grown up in church at all, that the number seven is not just kind of random, like, I don't know, seven. Let's just pick that number. No, it's it's a picture of perfection, of completeness. So what does it mean? Seven horns. Complete, perfect power. 
but you'd expect power to be associated with a lion, not a lamb. So all kinds of seeming contradictions here. Seven eyes. Now, praise the Lord, John explains this one. (laughs) So we actually know what this means. Seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Okay, a little weird, but uh, we, can, we can handle that because we go back to chapter 4, verse 5, and we see the seven spirits of God. We go back to chapter 1, verse 4, and we see the seven spirits who are before his throne. And Pastor Ron explained this, so you can go back and listen to the, the earlier messages on Revelation. But essentially, the seven spirits of God actually stands for the Holy Spirit of God. Seven, again, perfect and complete. Eyes, what do eyes do? They see. Um, and so it's this all-seeing God. I mean, this all-seeing lamb, sorry, before the throne. Verse 7 is very understated, and you'll miss it if you're not careful. And he, this lamb, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Okay, just, if you just gloss over that and you keep going, you're going to miss something. Who was able to take the scroll from the hand of the one who's seated on the throne before this? No one. There wasn't like a pool of 20 people. This is everyone living, dead, heaven, earth, under the earth. And this lamb just walks up to the throne, walks up to the throne, walks up to the throne, <laughs> and takes the scroll. That's incredible. If you're familiar with the book of Esther, remember Esther having to deliberate and fast and pray for three days before she approached the throne of her husband? You don't just walk up to the throne. We're not familiar with this, but you don't, you don't, you don't do that. that that's, that's off with his head kind of stuff. And yet the lamb just walks up to the throne and takes a scroll. <laughs> because we've been told he's worthy. He has conquered. How has he conquered? Well, we'll find that out in a minute. Verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, see, it's just very understated. He took the scroll. When he taken it, what happens? Well, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Before the lamb. Not before the throne, before the Lamb. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. We might have some polytheism going on here. Okay, now think of this. We, we're familiar with Trinity language. We're familiar with the worship of Jesus. We're familiar with praying to Jesus. But this is very interesting. There's one seated on a throne who in chapter 4 has been worshipped and praised and sung to. And now in chapter 5... The people turn from the one seated on the throne to the lamb and the elders and the four living creatures do the same thing to the lamb that they did the one seated on the throne. This is either a great problem or a really, really good thing. And we're going to go with the latter. Look at it. Fell down before the lamb. Now they're holding a harp. Okay, music, song. Um, we're not going to get too much into that right now. Golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So for some reason, they're holding the prayers of the saints in bowls. If you read the rest of Revelation, you'll find out a lot more about that. And verse 9, and they sang a new song. So who's singing? Four living creatures, 24 elders. And they sing a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Here's the song. You get a song, lamb, because you're worthy. Why are you worthy? Well, we know from verse 5 that this person is worthy because of conquering. But we're not told how the conquering happens. But we can put two and two together because we know our Bibles. 
And we know that the conquering happens because of the slaying. So there's a conquering lion and a slain lamb. And they're the same person. Because the conquering happened through slaying. The crown was earned by the cross. So this, this dead slain lamb, who's not dead but, lit, but alive, is also a conquering lion. And we know from verse 9 that the whole reason that this lamb is worthy to open the scroll is because he's been slain. It's completely opposite of how things work in our world. You don't die and get anything other than a coffin. And this lamb died, and by the lamb's blood, you ransom, redeemed, bought people for God. Very important phrase in, in Revelation from every tribe and language and people and nation. And praise the Lord, because most of the people in this room are Gentiles. And we've been purchased by the blood of the lamb. Verse 10, you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God. That's taken from verse 6 of chapter 1, which is taken from Exodus 19, 5 and 6, another Old Testament um, picture which we can't look at right now. Verse 11, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels. So we had a song. There were 28 people singing the song, or things, 28 things singing the song. Well, now we see the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So the worship, the singing expands. It moves. There's more. There's myriads of myriads. There's thousands of thousands. Which if you go to Daniel chapter 7, which we've already done for this series, you see one like a son of man coming on the clouds, and you see myriads upon myriads and thousands of thousands singing and worshiping to the Son of Man, not the one seated on the throne. Very, very similar. Go home today and read Daniel 7 and read Revelation 5. Read them together. Read one, then read the other, then read this one, then read that one. It's fantastic, all the parallels. Verse 13. And, it's not over yet, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and we get an addition, and in the sea, and all that is in them. Okay, so... Picture of how many people singing now? Everybody. <laughs> the universe. Look at that. Earth. I mean, heaven. Start in heaven. Everyone in heaven singing. Everyone on earth is singing. Everyone under the earth is singing. Things in the sea are singing. So this is, right, like the picture of Jesus when the Pharisees are like, oh, Lord, they're crying out to you. They're, well, if they don't, the stones will. Well, this is, this is what's happening. All of creation right, is singing and worshiping. Here's what they're saying. To him who sits on the throne. Ah, going back to the one who's seated on the throne. Okay. And to the lamb. Okay, so, so back in, in, ver, in chapter 4, there's worship of the one on the throne. In chapter 5, we see them turn from the one on the throne and worship the lamb. And now as it culminates, as it ends, before we open the scroll in chapter 6, all of creation, all of the universe is singing to two. The one seated on the throne and to the lamb. And this, if you haven't made the connection yet, this is the song we sang just a few minutes ago. To him who sits on the throne, God, okay, the one who is holy, the one who is radiant, the one who has a rainbow around his throne. There's, the only thing that can really explain it are brightness and whiteness and jewels. And to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. 
Listen, get in sync with this song because everybody's singing it. Okay, so the picture here, perhaps it's of the future, perhaps it's of the present, perhaps it's of the present and the future. Um, But we find out later from the book of Revelation that we will be doing um, quite a bit of worshiping and singing. Um, However, I would, some of you that are like, that's so boring. That's not all we're going to be doing in heaven. But um, it's going to be a wonderful time where we, we sing praises to God. And so we can start that now. So I would encourage you, singing at church is not for people that like singing. It's for Christians. Because we're worshiping the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. That's what we're doing. We're singing and praising. There's something about singing that raises something up within us that, that is not quite the same as the worship we do when we're preaching or the worship we do when we're giving or the worship we do when we're serving. So get in sync with this song. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures say, Amen. And, and the elders apparently can't get enough because they get back up in order to fall back down again and worship. So this is a model for our worship. Now, it doesn't mean like at work you have to like fall down on the ground a few times to worship God. No. Wouldn't be a bad idea sometimes to get on your face before God. But the, the picture here is the ever-expanding worship of God. This is going on right now as, as missionaries and as, as Christians go throughout the world to preach the gospel to new places. What do these new places do when they become Christians? They start writing songs in their language with their style of music. And the song expands, ever-increasing, and it's going to increase and increase until one day those who are saved by the Lamb, who are saved by His death, who are saved by His resurrection, will gather around this throne. We will, together, and sing praises to the Lord forever. It's not just about the future. This informs our present. This informs how we live today, that we worship the One who is a lion and He's a lamb. And he is standing. And he is slain. And we will see that for all of eternity. We're never going to stop singing about the cross. The cross doesn't get old in heaven. Ah, that happened back in the, the first age before we got up here. No, Jesus has the scars. We'll sing about the cross forever. We'll always sing about the cross. And we'll also celebrate a meal, which we're about to do right now. We're going to, to eat the bread and drink the juice that symbolizes the body and blood of Jesus. This is a holy, sacred moment. So as I ask the elders to come forward as we prepare for this, I would encourage you, if you're not sure or you don't know if you're a Christian, do not take a cracker or juice. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians warns against those who would abuse this. He even says, some in Corinth have fallen asleep. I know some of you have fallen asleep in the last 45 minutes, but not, this is not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about those who have actually died because they've abused what we're about to do. Do not enter in this lightly. This is a time of, of, of being solemn, of repentance, of confession, as well as a time of rejoicing as we gather around the elements and as we, as we, Think of what the Lord has done for us. We remember what he's done and we proclaim it until he comes again. So let's take an opportunity just to pray and then I would encourage you to pray, continue to pray. Maybe open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 11 or to the gospel passages and read what's going on in the Lord's Supper in communion as we call it. And then let's partake together. Father, thank you 
for this opportunity. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you that we have this time together as your people who from, are from every tribe, people, tongue, nation, um, that you have brought us together and you have saved us and you have um, made us holy. You are making us like your son. Pray this morning that we would observe this um, in rejoicing, but also with a caution that we would take this very, very seriously. In Jesus' name, amen.
Paul said to the church at Corinth, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, on the night when the lion submitted to being a slain lamb, he took bread and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. And in the Passover meal, he took the cup of wine and they passed it around. And Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So today we remember Jesus and we proclaim that he did something and he's going to do something. He's going to come back and he's going to fix everything and we're going to stand before the throne and we're going to worship the one who sits on the throne and the lamb. So let's drink in remembrance of Jesus.